Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the original Halloween Havoc. It's Halloween Havoc 89. Kyush, do you feel like the original Halloween Havoc lived up to the proud legacy of this show being the sickest show in wrestling? I honestly think that it did. I think that it's super weird that this was the first Halloween Havoc. I don't think I actually knew that going into this. And I feel like they really didn't have the theming maybe down yet. They maybe Not didn't have quite. like the main event has elements of it. Yeah. They don't really know what Halloween Havoc is going to become. However, if you're asking me if they put on a show that's like epic in scale and genuinely seems like their biggest show of the year, honestly, I would say yes. Yeah, I mean, I would say this was the weakest of the shows we've covered, but that's just because all the other shows we've done this season have had like an all-time classic match or several classic matches at the Great American Bash, whereas this one had some good matches, but nothing that I thought was spectacular. No, this is what I'll say, though. And like I I touched on this a little bit last time, but I really want to drive it home this time. The production value and the way this show looks is absolute light years ahead, not only of the things that they were doing before and after, but of what WWE is doing at this point. That's the crazy thing. This looks better than WrestleMania. And I I can't even think of when WrestleMania does look better than this. When we talk about kind of each company's advantage at this time, everybody always says, oh, the WWF's production was so much better. And I'm sure there were things. I'm sure if we dug deeper, we could think of things about their production that was better. But in terms of the way the shows look, this show looks awesome. Like the set and the staging is great. The lighting is great. I thought the music was. I mean, the music is dubbed in, but they were using a bunch of really cool music at the time. And the music sounds better than it has in the past. Like, like I'm sure. Again, it's tough to judge that because of like the dubbed in stuff. But, like, it's actually loud enough. It's not just, like, sort of background yeah. noise. And, like, there's, like, mist on the ground, so everybody looks cool when they come down. And this especially, this venue, as everybody walks to the ring, the fans are close enough that it's just, like, a sea of hands, like, reaching out for these people. It's a fucking amazing-looking show. Yeah. And even though the arena wasn't quite full, they were able to kind of stage it and shoot it in a way that made it look good. Yeah. I mean, this looks incredible. At the end of the day, once people get into the ring and take their their outfits off, they're just a bunch of, like, southern jabronis with, like, frizzled brawn hair. But that's fine. That's what this company I mean, we'll is. Get into it. There's some dudes who look really good on this show. We got a Brian yes. Film and Lex Luger match that feels like it's between two guys who should be leading this company into the 90s. And then there's Tommy Rich versus the Cuban Assassin. Not so great. A match straight out of 1975. Oh, yeah. But... Before we get to that, we've got three current wrestling stories to talk about. Um, Leading off with a debrief on AEW Full Gear, which went down over the weekend. Um, I thought it was a good show, but not one of AEW's best. What about you? I feel about the same. Um, About Pretty much what we said in the preview turned out to be true, which is that this isn't a very interesting show, doesn't have a lot of heat on it, but of course we're going to come out of it being like, all right, there was at least one match that's like an all-time banger, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, the match, I mean, for me, and I think everybody else, the Swerve Strickland-Hangman yep. Page match was just unbelievable. I, I think the only criticism I've seen is some people think the blood was over the top, and I did think the drinking blood spot was a little gross. 
close, but overall, I loved that match. And it was that's getting back to the what AEW was founded to be was to be an alternative to WWE, and that's a kind of match WWE does not put on. They do not do bloodbaths like that. And I'll say this, like, and I've seen a lot of people like getting like really uncomfortable about the drinking blood and how bloody it was and et cetera, et cetera. This is not just like a thing AEW does all the time. Really, this is a hangman page thing. <laughs> and if it's just one guy doing matches like this, I think that's okay. Much in the same style that Terry Funk at this point is the only person doing this shit in the world in 1989. Like it's, it's okay if that's his identity in the ring. I think Plus, I would maybe tell him, please don't drink blood next time. I would say never do that again. I don't ever want to see that in a match again. But I also don't think I've ever responded as viscerally to a moment ever in a wrestling match. Like, I screamed at the screen when he did that shit. And yet, Swerve Strickland gets the W. It's a star-making performance for Swerve. Yeah. It's exactly what he needed. I don't think Hangman really needed the win. Um and now you have two guys who are main eventers. That's fucking yeah. great. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, MJF retains the AEW title over Jay White after a bunch of shenanigans, including announcing that Adam Cole was going to replace him in the match. I don't really know what the point of any of this was. I'm interested to see if there's kind of a next part to that story coming. It's so funny because we were all expecting at least some sort of progression on the devil thing, somebody turning on somebody. And, like, it's pretty obvious that Tony Khan never intended to, like, do that here. He was just like, let's tell, like, an interesting babyface story for MJF. He's all in on babyface MJF. I I don't know if that's going to be the case forever. but I hope it's not. But I think with the last pay-per-view of the year being in Long Island. They've got to keep him babyface for that. He's going to be cheered there. I got to tell you this, though. Watching these 1989 Jim Crockett-style shows and then watching that AEW pay-per-view, it's so clear that that's what we're doing. Like, oh, yeah. It's, it just felt like the same tone, like the same kind of matches, the same kind of show. Some of the same people are involved. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> Not too uh, many, but still some. And, you know, we got a couple new champions. Tony Storm, the new AEW Women's Champion. Chris Statlander, the new TBS Champion. Uh, I believe the only title changes on the show, but I lose track of all these belts. Yeah, as St- Statlander lost to Julia Hart. Um, and, yeah, I mean, those are perfectly fine. I don't really think... This was like a transition pay-per-view. They really yeah. need, like, a big, huge top to bottom knockout perfect pay-per-view to like really like clean the taste of the last couple months out of everybody. But honestly, I was happy to have paid my money for this. Yeah. Plenty of big stuff on the horizon. We've got winters coming. We've got uh, the world's end pay-per-view coming up at the end of the year. And uh, the continental classic, the round Robin tournament is going to start this Wednesday. I, I have some thoughts, and they're not very positive about how this is being set up thus far. To have, obviously, I'm so in the bag for New Japan that I'm very protective of the G1 and how these kinds of things are supposed to go. But to have this tournament not really have anybody announced for it, not really clear how the brackets and the blocks are going to be set up. Like, I don't, I hate getting into this without knowing any of the information, you know? (laughs) 
They are. We're recording this Tuesday morning. They announced they're doing a streaming special on Wednesday where they're going to announce all the competitors. And I I can't remember exactly what they said, but the competitors, I would imagine they'll announce the blocks. I don't know if they're going to announce the full schedule with that. I Tony Khan's got to be working overtime booking this thing. I mean, booking one of these round-robin tournaments has got to be the most complicated thing in wrestling. It really is, especially since in order to have any sort of coherent anything, you kind of need to let the guys in on like what exactly it is that they're going to be doing. And then you got to make sure it doesn't get out. And that that's a nightmare on its own. And you got to figure out like, okay, this guy gets to look strong beating this guy, but then this guy's got to beat this guy. And two points is okay for this guy, but this guy really needs at least 10. Yeah. It is devastatingly complicated. But if you do it right, it sets up your storylines for the next full year. Yeah. Be interested to see if they can pull it off. It's a major booking challenge for a company who's creative. I don't think either of us have been super impressed with this year. And I do feel for Tony because I feel like he didn't realize he had such a time crunch with Danielson as he actually does. So, like, he he probably always wanted to do this for Brian. And now he's got like, oh, shit, I got to do this right fucking now. All right. All right. Um, Story number two, the big story coming out of the pay-per-view. Will Ospreay signs with AEW. Huge get for AEW. Sounds like WWE really wanted him, but AEW uh, lands his services. Huge, huge for them. Exactly the shot in the arm they need. It's funny because we were like, he can't possibly be signing in. His contract ends in February. And instead, they apparently struck a compromise where they could announce the signing yeah. now, even though he's still going to be wrestling for New Japan until February. That's, That's fine. a really good idea. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, like, he'll probably continue to work some of the big New Japan shows while he's with AEW. The funny thing is, like, from New Japan's perspective, they're, they're, they know that they're about to get raided because they're about we're in the middle of an arms race between All Elite and WWE. And to them, it just makes more sense to funnel these guys to AEW because then, then they can actually get them back again for sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if they go to WWE, they're gone. Yeah. I mean, Shinsuke wrestled one match against Muda, and that's it. But this way, Wrestle Kingdom comes around. They have Danielson. They might get like Omega or somebody else. Like you have access to these guys. You have to imagine they're going to be building to him either winning or at least challenging for the title at Wembley Stadium at the All In Show next year. Hard to imagine anything other than that headlining that show. That's really the part of the Osprey thing. Like Osprey's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, maybe. Um, he's certainly unbelievably exciting as an addition. But the fact of the matter is, is that he has been added and is now unbelievably important to this company as a drawing tool for what is now a difficult thing to, to sell. Yeah. Like we, we've talked about how Wimbley's going to be a hard sell for people the second time. He's the key to it. If they book him strongly and give him something really awesome to do, they'll fill it. If they don't, they won't. Yeah. And it's not that hard to say, okay, Osprey's going to win the title at Wembley. We need to have a strong champion for him to beat. You got right. plenty of time to figure it out, but they should figure it out now. Maybe it's MJF carrying the title all the way to there. Maybe that's the final blow off with Omega. Maybe it's a heel hangman page. They have a lot of options. Maybe it's Brian Danielson. But you need to pour as much heat on that yeah. shit as you can because you're trying to draw 80 fucking thousand people. Yeah. So be interested to see how that develops. And finally, um, 
WWE Survivor Series coming up this Saturday. We've got not one, but two War Games matches and some other fun stuff. Um, Randy Orton will be making his return after an 18-month absence as the final member of Cody's team to take on Drew McIntyre in the Judgment Day. Um, what do you think? Of, what do you think of Randy being the one returning? I think we both. I think everybody knew this was coming. Although I know some people were still holding out hope that it was going to be CM Punk. First of all, as Steve pointed out earlier, that we're recording this on Tuesday because we were actually at that Raw in Grand Rapids last night, um, and everybody in the arena knew it was Randy. Yeah. Everybody in the arena Changing was Randy the entire show. The palpable disappointment when it turned out that we were just announcing Randy, yeah. but not actually having Randy, though they had to do that because otherwise, if they got into the show without saying anything, everyone in Chicago would have assumed it was Punk. Yeah. So they had to do this. Totally get that. Uh, it being Randy is amazing. <clears throat> I will say this. Something that we did not see live that I saw in a clip was uh, when Cody announced it, Jay Uso looking, yeah. over, looking really concerned. I didn't really even remember that Jey Uso was part of the people who put Randy out. Sure That's was. interesting. It was a year and a half ago, so easy to not remember. I'd say I, that could I saw be a great a launching point. This morning of like what was going on in WWE the last time Randy Orton was around, and it's pretty wild. It's like Roman had just unified the titles. Vince McMahon hadn't been fired, like a bunch of people, like Ricochet was the Intercontinental Champion, just stuff that seems insane now. Jesus Christ. Yeah. He's coming back to almost a different world. Cody hadn't torn his pack yet. Cody had just returned. You know, it's funny that you say that Ricochet was the IC champion because that's only one IC champion ago. It's just yeah. that Gunter's held it the whole fucking Gunther's time. Been the champion forever at this point. Um, be interested to see, you know, just what Randy does here. Does Randy? I, it feels like he's going to turn on this team, but Randy Orton. You always feel like Randy Orton is going to turn on people. The good thing about Randy Orton's character, especially now that he's old man Orton, is that it could really go in any direction. Yeah. There's no limits on this, like. He could feud with Jin. If you told me he feuded with literally anyone on the roster, I'd be like, all right, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Could come back and renew his feud with Drew McIntyre. He could be Cody's mentor, or he could turn on Cody. He could go after Jey Uso because Jay put him out. He could challenge Roman Reigns. I mean, that's I. I'm sure I'm for. I'm sure they've wrestled each other at some point in the last couple of years, and I'm forgetting it, but. That was that felt like the match they were building to when Orton got hurt. Oh, it definitely was. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I'm not actually sure what he's going to do, but maybe for the first time in God knows how long, I'm very excited to see where Randy Orton's future lies. Yeah. <laughs> Being out for a year and a half will do that. I mean, I thought he, I was thinking he was retiring. I was not expecting yeah. him to come back. Well, here's the other thing, too. When he left... Things were like sort of getting better. He re-enters this company yeah. in the midst of a boom period. Yeah. He is being added to a roster that is suddenly full of stars. <laughs> like he's extra now. That's amazing. It's actually got to be kind of wild for him, a guy who's been with the company for over 20 years, to finally work. That entire you can I don't think you can say they were ever hot the entire time he worked there. No, he came in in 02, which was yeah. the end. Like, it was after the end of the, the boom. And I don't... Certainly not this hot. Like, probably not even really close. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. 
me as a Detroit Lions fan, finally seeing the team be good after all these years of suffering. And I wonder if that played into his decision. If yeah. it's the same old, same old, and he's still tagging with Riddle, does he really come back? Or does he look around now and he's just like, I've got a billion people to work yeah. with that I've never worked before. There's so much money now. Fuck so yeah, I'm many these back. people are So many people are over that he could work with. Uh, yeah. Lots this of things is gone. Just Triple H booking? Fuck yeah, get me out there, coach. So yeah. All right, let's get in the way back machine. Go back to October 1989. Uh, we are coming off the classic Great American Bash in which Ric Flair beat Terry Funk to retain the NWA title in the main event. That show did pretty well. However, the Great American Bash Tour overall was a disaster. And after the poor performance of the Bash Tour at the box office... Flair made a power play. He went to Jim Hurd and said, I want the book. Put me in charge of the booking committee. And Hurd agreed, which I find a little surprising, but I think Hurd was you know, starting to maybe feel some heat from the office, especially over the um, decline in TV ratings. And here's the thing. Like, Ric Flair has him over a barrel. Like, if, he just wa- if Ric Flair walks away from this company, they have nothing. So, like, they're kind of beholden to him. He used his leverage... Yeah. Um, uh, Cornette would describe how this worked as basically Flair would come up with the matches for the clashes and the pay-per-views and some of the big angles, but then he would just kind of leave the detail work to Sullivan, who was primarily, you know, putting things together. And Cornette was kind of Sullivan's understudy. Cornette had not booked before, but they were kind of getting him ready to be a booker at this point. So he was learning from Sullivan. But Flair is not going to sit down and, like, sketch out all the TV matches and the TV formats and that. But he's just saying, like, okay, I'll, you know, we'll do me and Sting against Funk and Muda in a cage. We'll do Luger versus Pillman. We'll do this match. We'll do this match. And you guys figure us figure out how to get us there. That's actually not a bad idea yeah. because it gives other people booking experience so that they could, in theory, help you out at various points. You get different perspectives involved, but you have one person's vision as to where the product's actually supposed to go. I don't hate that. That's not a bad idea. Also, according to Cornette, the first thing Flair did was push Eddie Gilbert off the booking committee. I guess that sounds like that's who he blamed for the failure of the Bash tour. Yeah, not just off the booking committee, off the shows altogether. He's yeah. gone. <laughs> Amazing how he's gone from being Sting's buddy who keeps popping up to just flat gone. Missy Hyatt, yeah. too. Poor Sting, who goes from having, like, Eddie Gilbert for no reason to Ole Anderson for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, he said, Cornette said they quickly came into conflict with Hurd. Heard had this thing he hated interviews on the shows. Every time they would have interviews in the format, Heard would either cut the time down or just cut them out of the formats entirely. I I don't know. Like I the the idea that we're supposed to have a wrestling TV show that's nothing but squash matches and no interviews in between is crazy. Who would want to watch that? And that's the thing, like, if you don't want interviews on pay-per-view, I I guess I can be fine with that. But, like, how are you supposed to get the angles over if nobody says anything? (laughs) The interviews are what people watched for. Yeah. I skipped through the matches to get to the the interviews. Oh, 100%. That's that's the character progression. (laughs) Back then, when they're not good matches, the matches are just two-minute squashes. But people wanted to see, yeah, you want to see your favorite stars wrestle, but you really want to hear them talk. 
and see all the crazy antics they're going to get up to. Yeah. Half the reason people turn on is because Ric Flair is going to do a five-minute promo at some point that you don't want to miss it. They then, in August, had two insane technical screw-ups in the same weekend. First, they accidentally re-aired an episode of World Championship Wrestling that had aired three weeks earlier because someone put the wrong tape in a basket that I in the studio then just put into the machine and it started rolling. Yeah, during the course of the show, someone thankfully from the office was watching and eventually realized, like, realized they were showing the wrong show. But by the time they were able to get down to the studio or call the studio, it was too late to get a different tape put in. So they just aired the wrong episode of World Championship Wrestling. They re-aired a show that it aired three weeks ago. That is fucking wild. I mean, there's no oversight. Especially since it's a tape. People are just loading it in. They're not pre-watching it. On Saturday at 6 p.m., there's just there's one guy in the studio changing these tapes out. Yeah. It's just funny to, to think, like, I've been in these studios with, like, the giant, like, racks of all of this shit and everything you got to keep organized. Literally, all you can do is just put the right thing on at the right time. <laughs> That is your one job, but I don't think the guy in the studio screwed up. I think somebody, I think one of the quote unquote wrestling people messed up and just put the wrong tape, you know, in the play. I don't know how this works. I don't know if there's just like baskets in the studio where it's like, okay, this goes on at this time, this episode of Leave it to Beaver at this time, and this is the wrestling show for 6 p.m. And they put the wrong tape in the wrestling basket. I've actually seen it. Yeah, there's like cubbies and like they'll like yeah. they'll have some guy come through and be like, this one's for eight. This one's for eight thirty. This one's for nine. And then they just yeah. have a guy like changing, like pulling up the old tape, putting in the new tape during the commercial break. Like I've seen it happen. That's how like uh, radio stations work when I did college radio. Like literally like you physically have to do it during that downtime. You do not have time to double check and see what the fuck it is that you're putting on. No. And this guy, the guy in the studio wouldn't have known anyway unless he was a big wrestling fan. Yeah. And even if he was a big fan, like, I, well, he can't do anything anyway, though. He's not going to not – even if he knows it's the wrong tape, you have to play something. You're not going to have dead air for two hours. And here's the thing. The shows probably all look pretty fucking yeah. similar. I mean, like, <clears throat> it's not like there's huge – it's not like – you had got a SmackDown tape and it's raw. You might notice that. No, it's the same set. Yeah, it's the same, same shit. People. Even somebody who worked there, it might take them a little while to be like, wait, this is a show from a couple weeks ago. Yep. And then that same weekend, they were doing a TV taping and they forgot to turn the camera on for an angle they were taping and had to put together an emergency TV taping to get a recording of that angle for the show. I think somebody got fired over this one. Holy shit. You just got to press that red button and record. I can't. I mean, as the two of us who have on at least five occasions recorded an entire podcast (laughs) and then had to redo it, I'm not going to talk a lot of shit. But, like, this is an amateur production. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And I think we only forgot to hit the recording button one time. Yeah, that is true. That was my darkest moment because I'm usually the one who hits it. And I had to go like, hey, Steve, uh, we got to redo all of that. I forgot to hit it. It was a ho- it was one of the early Halloween Havocs. I think it might have been the Chamber of Whores. That might be the closest our podcast ever came to just not happening is just being like, we got to read talk about the Chamber of Horrors from scratch. 
Also, yeah. every time they've ever had to redo the show, it came out better the next time. Yeah. So maybe that says something <laughs> about us. I don't know. Wrong. Yeah. Um, so they ran the Clash of the Champions Fall Brawl on September 12th from Columbia, South Carolina. Not a super notable show, except for one big angle I'll talk about in a second. The main event, Sting and Flair beat Muda and Dick Slater by a DQ. Terry Funk, you know, in both kayfabe and reality, was dealing with injuries. So they did an elaborate angle where he was injured and couldn't work the match. But then he interfered in the main event and put a plastic bag over Ric Flair's head and tried to suffocate him with it. That really didn't go over well with TBS, if you can believe that. See, there's a difference between, like, doing some sort of worked thing to, like, be like, this man's crazy. He's going to try to kill Flair. Like, if he had grabbed, like, a lasso or some shit like that, which obviously can be very intense also, but that can be worked. This is just a real plastic bag that he really puts over Ric Flair's face. And it's something that's in every house that every kid can do. Yeah, you don't want your little yeah. kids like putting the plastic bag over their brother's face because you saw it on the TV. They'll die. Yeah. They got a ton of backlash from this. The other problem, maybe it's a good problem. This class did a 4.7 rating, which was really good. That's way up from what they had been doing. So tons of people saw this angle. Woof. And they did that number despite going up against the season premiere of Roseanne, which if you were around in, 18, in 1989, you know Roseanne was over back then. Oh, it was big over back then. Yeah. The, really impressive a, and indicative of how, you know, better creative was starting to turn things around here. I think there was a ton of interest in this funk and flare feud. I don't. It's interesting that the house shows weren't drawing, but the TV ratings were good. Yeah. Like, that's that's difficult to parse. I think it's lack of local promotion and ground game. I think they didn't have the – I don't think they had the blocking and tackling they needed to actually sell tickets. And I don't think they got it until they hired Zane Bresloff later in the 90s. That makes sense. Um, yeah, business seems to be picking up. TV ratings, live attendance are rating, rising. Some of that might be seasonal. I've always heard people say the summer was a downtime for wrestling because people would do more outdoor activities in the summer and not want to go to a wrestling show. And TV viewership goes way down, especially back then. TV viewership would fall a ton in the summer because there would be no new, you know, scripted TV shows. They'd all be off during the summer. Yeah, that does make sense. Everybody would actually go outside and do activities outside and such. A very different uh, time. A very different time. Uh, other news. They brought back Ole Anderson. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he was immediately put on the booking committee, but he's going to get the book in early 90, which, of course, ends up being a disaster. But here on this show, he's going to be the corner man for Sting and Flair in their steel cage match against Muda and Funk. I mean, what'd you make of babyface Ole Anderson? It's just so weird, first of all, for him to be a babyface at all because he's a, like a psychopath old fuck. Uh, second of all, it's weird to introduce him and then after a month be like, all right, he's the one who gets to decide who, how this match ends. Like he he's got our back old Ole Anderson. I know that he was part of the horseman once upon a time, 
But again, Sting just trusts weird motherfuckers. That's Sting disease. I would never trust Ole Anderson. No. Under any circumstance. That man with his all with his, his black college shirt, his black slacks, and his black suspenders. This is what a look. my favorite. My favorite part about WCW is just trying to figure out how Sting gets himself into these stupid ass situations. Like, <laughs> imagine you're him, and it's just like, okay, I'm gonna team with Ric Flair, who has betrayed every partner he's ever had. Yeah. I'm gonna he give the towel to Ole Anderson, so the match can only be stopped. The ass kicking of me can only be stopped if Ole Anderson bails me out, and I'm gonna go in there against two absolute crazy people. That sounds fun. Electrified cage. I'm the stinger. And here's the smartest thing they did. And I think it's the reason for a lot of the success of this show. They hired our old friend Elvira to help with the production. The Hell production. yeah. She shot commercials for this and they were awesome. See, this is such a good idea. Holy shit, that's a good idea. Yeah. I love the Halloween Havoc theme. Elvira was perfect for it. Wish they had her on the actual show. Yeah, you couldn't have gotten her out there to do like one psych. It would have been funny to see her talking to Jim Ross because, A, she's oh. like a foot and a half taller than Jim Ross. Yeah, and I feel B, like she would be very uncomfortable. Yeah, you don't see like Jim Ross talking to a lot of girls in those days. It's not a good idea. This is my favorite part about Jim Ross in the NWA. Later on, he becomes like good old JR, who's like just like a pretty solid guy. Here, he seems like the biggest fucking nerd wrestling pervert in the world. That's what he comes across as. Oh, man. Before we get to the show, are you ready for a 1980s Halloween Havoc lightning round? I cannot wait for another 1989 lightning round. Antonio Inoki was elected to the House of Counselors in Japan. Narrowly, just barely won. The fabulous thing about this is that when it, this, this happened at the time, there really wasn't like a, any sort of precedent for him actually becoming part of the actual government. It, it seemed ridiculous that he even wanted to try, and then he succeeded. It yeah. didn't make any sense. A few weeks later, a deranged man stabbed him in the neck. Yep. Yeah. And Zanoki did what? He no-sold the shit out of it. The guy's ass? Yep. A house show in Worcester, Massachusetts drew only a $7,000 house. Wow. That had to be like 500 people tops. At that point, you should just be like, give everybody their money back and be like, sorry, guys, um, uh, we didn't do a good job here. Can't imagine what the payoffs are on a $7,000 house. <laughs> if they the main event him. guys both got 3% of the like after-tax gross, it's like 50 bucks for the main event. Yeah, the openers just got cans of tuna. Yeah. Uh, the, open, the opening match guys had to pay the company. <laughs> A house show in Greensboro only drew 2,200 fans. Again, that's their heartland. Greensboro. They Greensboro. used to do 10,000 10, a month in Greensboro every month and frequently would sell it out. Yeah, this is the place where for a not that exciting tag team cage match, they shut down the city of Greensboro yes. completely. <laughs> 
When asked about a possible match against Jerry Lawler on a radio show, Flair responded by burying Lawler and calling him a pathetic excuse for a human being. This is some A-plus shit. I don't know if he's, like, potentially working an angle on that or if he just really that, wants to bury Jerry Lawler. That was 100% real. <laughs> him and Lawler never worked together. I don't know what the issue was, but I don't think he was setting anything up. I think he actually just hated Jerry Lawler. You have to imagine that during those, like, super class shows that all the promotions are putting together together, like, Lawler versus Flair had to have come up. And, like, Flair had to have turned that shit down. Yeah. I think Lawler would do interviews on Memphis TV where he would take shots at Flair. And that's just Lawler trying to work something. But I think Flair took offense to some of the things he would say. He's uh, Flair, knowingly or not, also is not wrong. <laughs> The governor of South Carolina appeared in a pre-taped segment on the Clash of the Champions where he presented Ric Flair with an official proclamation proclaiming Ric Flair Day in the state of South Carolina. I wonder if people in South Carolina literally like, oh, hey, it's Ric Flair Day today. Sick. Let's let's all woo. Better celebrate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what day Ric Flair Day is. Dave Meltzer gave Lex Luger's match against Tommy Rich from the Clash of the Champions a four-star rating. What? It was pretty good. I don't know about four stars, but it was pretty good. You know, I was going to go on to bury Tommy Rich even being present on this show, but I guess guess if you just had a four-star classic with Luger, it makes sense that he's here. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson gave their notice to the WWF that they were planning to leave and return to the NWA. Now, I do have a question about this because I don't really know how it worked out. But, like, why doesn't Tully come back here? Just Arn comes back. Failed if drug Flair test. Has the... Her refu- Her wouldn't sign him when the failed drug test came out. It just seemed weird that, like, Flair didn't have enough stroke to get the horsemen back. Yeah, there was a limit, and drug use was not something to mess around with back in the 80s. Which is funny, because that drug test was really probably, it wasn't staged, but I'm guessing everybody there failed drug tests. They and that's set just, him up. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those, like, the same thing they did to Scott Hall, where it's like, it was drug test failure that they weren't going to do anything with until they found out he was leaving, and then they used it, to, they leaked it and used it to bury him. And that's literally, like, it ends his career. Yeah, like that's really the last never we see Tully significant again until until AEW, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. The WWF raised the price of front row tickets for their Madison Square Garden shows to eighteen dollars. Jesus Christ, eighteen, 18 fucking bucks. dollars! Yeah, you know, for double it for inflation, thirty six today. That's like the get in price. For house shows now. Oh yeah, you can go to Saginaw, Michigan, and see a house show for yeah. about that price. Much not sitting in the front row at MSG. Paul Heyman was fired after he did an interview that annoyed Flair by being too targeted to the dirt sheets. He'll be back. That's fascinating that you can do a a promo that's bad enough that you get fired. Yeah, I think Flair wasn't a fan, and Heyman just. You know, it was probably one of those firings where I can believe somebody was like, hey, Paul, you just need to go home for a little, go home for a few months and, you know, you'll probably be back. But you just need to lay low for a while. Everybody's a little sick of you. Not only is he going to be back, in theory, he should have been the manager of the 90s with his dangerous alliance. But yep. we 
We've already eulogized that poor dead thing many times. Prelim wrestler Dale Vesey of the State Patrol Tag Team was arrested for theft and extortion in trying to intimidate a witness for his arrest in August for selling steroids. So wait, the State Patrol Tag Team, is that what I think it is? Like a bunch of fake cops? Yep. And he gets oh god, arrested for peddling steroids. <laughs> Holy shit. And finally, the hammer. Buddy Rogers, who was in his 60s at the time, beat up a man who was harassing waitresses in the restaurant he was eating lunch in. Wait, what? So Buddy Rogers is like in a diner eating lunch and some dude comes in and starts harassing the waitresses and yelling at them and whatever. Buddy Rogers politely tells him to shut up and leave. The man gives him some lip and Buddy Rogers whips his ass, even though he's like 64 at the time. And Buddy Rogers was in his day regarded as a phony showman wrestler, not a real wrestler like Luthas. That's the funny thing is that like even like the entertainers from back in those days were way harder than anyone you'd ever meet in everyday life. Yeah, if you were going to be the world champion, you had to know how to shoot because somebody might try to somebody might try something on you. And if you think about it, he had to be doubly hard because everyone in every bar across the nation would be yeah. like, oh, it's pansy-ass Buddy Rogers. Let's beat his ass. Fuck, if I was him, I wouldn't even have gone out because I'm like, I just can't deal with this stuff. <laughs> like, I'm good. Somebody's trying to fight me every time I go out. Yeah, like, same with, like, Gorgeous George. Like, you know yeah. there's no way they can go out and, like, live a normal life. People are coming for them. All right, so to get into the show, it's Saturday, October the 28th, 1989. Um, Because this show was on Saturday, this is insane. They still aired Saturday, you know, World Championship Wrestling, the Saturday night show that night. So the second hour of World Championship Wrestling was going head-to-head with the pay-per-view. What? Why would you do that? I have no idea. How could you not just shorten Saturday night or time it so it's a two-hour Saturday night that leads into the pay-per-view, do what AEW did and move Collision to Friday? But yeah, it makes no sense to me that they did this this way. Or at least just like put on like classic matches with like a little ticker across the bottom, like the pay-per-view is going on right now. Go buy that. Uh, We're at the Philadelphia Civic Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That is the B Arena in Philadelphia at this point. The Spectrum was the A Arena, but that was the WWF's build-in. Still looks great. I mean, it's obviously not a huge place because when they have to kind of shoot it from the corner to make it look as big as it actually is, it's clearly like a horseshoe shape, not like a big, huge arena. But it doesn't really matter. Like, this looks good. I love the character of these old arenas. I love the ba- the balconies and the wood paneling and that kind of stuff. I just think that's so, such a cool look. You can just like imagine like the cigarette smoke hanging yeah. over in a haze over the ring. Uh, there's about 7,500 people there for a $110,000 gate. It's about 2,000 people short of a sellout, but a decent number. You know, nothing to get too upset about. Yeah, perfectly fine. Uh, The show does a surprisingly good 1.77 buy rate for about 190,000 buys. That's the highest of the year. And, you know, Meltzer, and I'm not saying this to clown him, predicted that this would be the worst drawing paper, you know, WWF 
or NWA pay-per-view to date. And I don't think that was a crazy prediction, but this exceeds all expectations. I think the cage, yeah, cause you got, either the cage or Elvira drew the house. Yeah. You got to assume like coming into this, no that like this match, is a, not that big a card. Yeah. It's a new pay-per-view that doesn't really have an identity yeah. yet. Like, yeah. Like Elvira drew the house, the cage drew the house, but also I think again, there's just more interest in funk flair than I think people realized. And in sting Muda. Yeah. Um, on commentary, we got Jim Ross and Bob Cottle, as always, like a warm glass of milk. Bob Cottle, man, like I, <laughs> I've never seen him be like a play-by-play guy by himself. I'm not even sure if he ever really did that. I think that he did. Um, it's difficult to imagine because he's like the most boring man ever to speak into a microphone. He never has anything useful to say at all. And it seems like JR is mostly ignoring him all the time. And yet, as you say, his voice is like a warm glass of milk on a summer night. Relaxing. It's just sitting back, chilling out, watching some old school wrestling. Well, JR, I'm pretty sure that Terry Funk would like to win this match. That's if that would be good for him. Uh, We get a fun opening with an animated graveyard, and that's about. There's a little bit of Halloween stuff with the cage that we'll talk about, but there's not a lot of Halloween flavor to this show. Yeah, honestly, with like the columns and shit, it doesn't feel Halloween themed at all. But that's okay. That's that's the same set they used for Starcade, so that just had become their pay per view set at this point. Yep. Uh, JR kicks it to, well, first we cut into the arena and Mike Rotunda and Tom Zenk are already in the ring, but then we go to Gordon Soley, who's backstage at a Crip set. I'm wrong. There was more Halloween flavor tonight. Gordon Soley is now, like, you're literally watching, he's like shriveling up in real time and his voice is so small. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really old. And then we cut to Chris Cruz, who is a newcomer here. He ends up lasting forever in this company without ever really playing a prominent role. Like, he would be the commentator on their syndicated shows uh, well into the 90s. He does a thing here that I don't think I've ever seen on any wrestling show ever, where he lists off the pro- like the interviews he's going to be doing over the course yeah. of the night. It's interesting. Which is interesting. Like, I kind of like that. And he's actually he's perfect for this backstage role because he is a really little guy with a really big voice, and that's exactly what you're looking for. He looks like almost identical to everybody else, but like really he should be replacing Gordon here. Like it, I'm sure that that's the idea. They got to phase Gordon out. He's not looking too. Good. Oh man, Gordon's gonna do commentary on the New York Knockout Clash that we're covering next week. Oh, geez, that's going to yeah. be why because he's still Gordon. So he's still getting in his digs on guys, but he's like doing <laughs> it so deadpan. Oh, man. Um, opening match. We've got Tom Zink against Captain Mike Rotunda. Both okay, men roundly booed by the Philadelphia crowd. This is not Tom Zink. How dare you? This is the, the Z-Man. Z-Man. What a tool. Did I ever tell you the story about when we said like a vaguely nice thing about Tom Zank on Acute Reviews one time and like somebody from his personal website like messaged to thank us profusely for that? That may have been Tom Zank and we're pretty sure it was. No. 
Yes. Wow. Like literally, like we got a glowing message from the the person who runs his personal website, which is just literally a blog about all the nice things anyone's ever said about Tom Zank. And I can't imagine what kind of crazy fucking person would do that unless it's him himself. Yeah, I can't imagine Tom Zank has a staff. No. So it's just fascinating for me to think of Tom Zink in his twilight years, just Googling furiously, looking for anyone saying something nice about his career, because God, was he not received well at any stage of it. The crowd does not give this match a chance. They're chanting boring a minute into it. It's not a good match. Let's be clear about that. Like it's a, it is a deeply boring match. And way too long. 13 minutes. This was like a six or eight minute opener, I think. 13 yeah. was too long. They're basically just having Mike Rotunda do his TV title matches still. So <laughs> no he's still getting, on the line. Yeah, yeah, he's still getting the 15 minutes every night, but he's just <laughs> chilling. Like, I just think about this if this had rounds. Like, this is a match that may, if you did five minute rounds in wrestling, this is a match that you probably would have let get into the second round, but not the third round. Yep. And like, I don't, I don't really think they have any plans for Rotunda. So like, they're trying. Flair, to his credit, sees all these young, good looking, muscular guys coming up, and it's like, let's push those guys. Like, obviously, this is the new generation. We want these guys to get over. Let's do this. I don't think that Tom Zink was necessarily going to go anywhere, but it, it makes sense to do it that way. Mike Rotunda's not going to the main event. Zink gets the win by rolling through a crossbody for the pin, and he gets the shit boot out of him. He really, really does. This, this Philly crowd was one of my favorite parts of the show. They were feisty. <laughs> Though, like, they normally you associate the Philly crowd with only, like, cheering the heels and and like booing the faces, which they do do some of here, but also they like, they're just kind of rabid in general. Yeah. Like it, it was a hot crowd. Uh, next up, Chris Cruz interviews Bruno San Martino, who's going to be our referee for the main event tonight. Good get to get Bruno. I don't know if he helped. I, I can believe some people bought tickets in Philly to see Bruno. That's just smart because, like, this is not their territory, obviously. And it, it, and it goes back to a couple years earlier where people probably felt like they had to pick sides. And, like, I'm not watching WC fucking W, but if Bruno's there, then it's okay. Yeah. Bruno got a major axe to grind with Vince at this point. He is mad about the steroids. He's mad about how Vince treated his son. So he's going to do everything he can to mess with Vince. He probably would have wrestled if they had really paid him enough for it. Next match, we've got the Midnight Express and Dr. Death Steve Williams against the Samoan SWAT team. Um, we got a third Samoan now. It's Samu, who's Tonga from the Islanders of the WWF. He's billed as the Samoan Savage. Yes, we have the Samoan SWAT team and the Samoan Savage managed by the big kahuna, Oliver Humperdinck. Dink! Yeah, they've dropped Heyman at this point. I, I, love think... the Samo- I love the Samoans' entrance here where they were swinging the torches around. That was cool. Let me be clear. Like, when they were doing that entrance, I was like, we have actual production values yeah. here. We're doing, like, elaborate entrances. That's not even the last one. Yeah. Like, they're making—this feels so big. 
this is a solid match, but it's another one that just went on and on and on. 18 minutes here. I am not afraid to say that I did not watch this entire match because it is endless. And nothing really happens in it. It just, the match can't end ever. Once you settled into the heat segment, you know, you settled into just an ultra long heat segment here. And it's just a lot of nerve holds and a lot of boring Samoan laying on top of Bobby Eaton. And then, like, none of the people on the babyface team are particularly sympathetic. The Midnight's... While they are faces now and people do yeah. love them, they're not a tag team like that. They're not no. the Rock and Roll Express. And they're they're about to turn heel. Their face turn has run its course. Yeah. And Doctor Death, Doctor Death is a bad guy. I don't know why where they got in their head he should be a baby face. Like he's a scary ass kicking heel. His baby face comeback at the end does get over. Like the fans yeah, do it's like incredible it. Incredible to see him throw the Samoans around. It only lasts like 30 seconds before this match abruptly ends. Yeah, the Samoan Savage hits Lane from behind with a forearm and pins him. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Aside from the fact that you have now triggered Stump Steve. Oh, no. Samoans? Samoans, baby. We're going to the Annoy family tree. Oh, no. I don't know this at all. Here we go, buddy. So, I'm going to name you five Samoan wrestlers, and I need you to tell me if they are part of the NOIE family tree or not. Okay. Am I allowed to ask a a clarifying question? Sure. Are we counting the Blood Brothers thing? Uh, I'm not going to say Snooka because I don't really think that that shit counts. That's, That's fair. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to count people who married in either. I thought about hitting you with Gary Albright because I didn't think you would get it, but he is a member of that family. I didn't know that. Who did he marry? Alpha's daughter. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that, no. Okay, so I'm going to start off with some easy ones. Two easy ones, just to kick it off, okay? Yeah. Samoa Joe. No, he is yeah. not related to any of the Samoans. That is correct. Uh, the second one. Uh, L.A. Smooth. I don't know who that is. I'm going to say no. Well, he actually is, but you don't know who that is, so I won't count that. I won't count that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Tama Tonga in New Japan. No, isn't he Ming's son? Uh, yes, he is. Yeah, the complicating thing between Peter Maivia and the NOI family is it's it's complicated, but it's a cousins thing. We're gonna call that no. So okay. yes, correct on that. Uh, Dakota Kai of the WWE. Uh, this is so random. I'm gonna have to say yes. She's actually not, though. She is Samoan. Her mother is Samoan. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Anybody from New Zealand. Might actually be Samoan because it's all just kind of mixed in, right? Yeah. Uh, the other ones I had were Sonny Siaki, formerly of TNA. I don't know if you know who that is. Nope. All right. Uh, Manu. Yes. And the three members of this match. Um. Yes to Rikishi. Yes to the Samoan Savage. And 
who is the third guy here? I don't even remember who the other Samoan is here. It's Samu. Yes, he is. That's correct. Yeah, okay. Yep, these are all the pure blood. Okay. I heard an insane story this week that whichever who's the Samoan who's been in MLW? Uh Jacob. Apparently, WWE asked him to come for one of the Bloodline segments, and MLW wouldn't let him. This dude could have been on Raw in one of those Bloodline segments, and MLW was like, no, you're exclusive to us, we won't let you do that. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, that they could have had their champion on Raw, and they didn't want that exposure. I mean, they were probably terrified that once he got there that he would be like, yeah, I'm not going back to MLW. Of course he's going to leave. You're MLW. But, like, I don't know, maybe you could have gotten some compensation. But, like, literally, he is cousins with the Usos. He's from that same, like, level of the family. Like, it it would be – if they had actually done, like, the tribal court and gotten, like, Jacob Fatu and Rikishi and some of those guys. I think that was the segment they were talking about. I think it was – one of the, like – yeah, it was they they teased. I think they ended up canceling it, but it was when they were doing like they were gonna do like Roman is fully gonna be like crowned as the head of the table, and the idea was they were gonna have as many of the guys as they could possibly get there, and they dropped it and they did the trial of Sami Zayn instead, which uh, was good. That was very good segment, but this probably would have been good too. You could have put the MLW belt on this guy, and they probably would have let him fucking wear it. Like WWE would have been cool about this. They don't care. Oh, man. What a bunch of idiots. Don't want our guy to get exposure on the biggest viral segments in existence during the biggest storyline of the last 30 years. Next up, Soli interviews Funk and Gary Hart. Uh, Funk brags about how he's going to electrocute Sting and Flair tonight with the electrified cage. Make note of that. Yes, the cage is supposed to be electrified. The only thing I really care about here is that Terry Funk is shredded. Yeah. Like I, I did not remember that that was the case. He's in unbelievable shape. This might be the best shape I've ever seen him in. I think and so. Well into his forties at this point. Yeah. Much better shape than Tommy Rich, who's in the next match. We've got Tommy Rich against the Cuban Assassin. How old do you think Tommy Rich was here? God. I would guess he was like 45, but he had his big run in like 81. So I don't know. He's 33. 33? Yeah. He's younger. He's younger than me. Dude, he looks ancient, weathered, like he's been through some shit. As I always say, years were longer in wrestling back then. But that means when he was doing, like, the big-ass feud that he had in, like, the he old so days. Before, young. He, he was so young. He like, 22. What yeah, the fuck? he was insanely young when he was the NWA champion. He has to be the youngest one ever. That is insane. Like, no wonder they keep rolling him out. I keep being like, why do they keep bringing this old-ass dude? He still should have years left in his yeah, career. But he's really not done anything of significance since the last Battle of Atlanta, and that was in 1983. Woof. Yeah. Uh, the Cuban assassin is a Puerto Rican wrestler who was top gun in Puerto Rico. Just kind of an old, you know, veteran heel hand. Yep. 
There's really nothing even interesting to say about that or really about this match, which again, it goes on for eight minutes. Yeah. This does not need to be on this show. No, not <laughs> at all. This was a dark match at best. Um, boring chance get going pretty quickly. Rich gets the win with a Thez press, which doesn't help with the feeling that this match is straight out of 1975. It's just wild because there's so many modern things on this show and the production looks so good to then have this match happen really undermines what you're trying to accomplish here. But this feels like a Ric Flair thing. Like, Oh, let's, let's get Tommy back in there. See if we can capture some of the wildfire. There's no wildfire here. No. Um, yeah, and that's the question with so many of these things. You're asking, like, who who on the, who has the influence? I mean, Tommy Rich feels like he was part I – mean, I mean, he may have been one of the guys George Scott brought back, which it's wild to think about the fact that George Scott was booking this promotion at the beginning of the year. That feels so long ago now. Yeah, now that we're, like, three bookers on yeah. and a whole team down and, like – just every single pay-per-view it's like we have a whole new it's been getting better but yeah every pay-per-view we've had a different booker this year right yeah and and that's the wild thing is that like these these pay-per-views have been extremely good and yet they've all been wildly different from each other uh solely then interviews the freebirds and we've got a world tag title match as the freebirds defend against the dynamic dudes this. Not only are we now three pay-per-views removed from Michael Hayes, potential top babyface, we are now into the Freebirds tag team specialists and world champions. Yeah, against the dudes. Years before Shane Douglas would be wildly over in ECW in Philadelphia, here he gets a frosty reception from the Philadelphia crowd. They put Cornette with the dudes to try to make it yeah. less embarrassing. And like, Look, I don't hate the idea of the dudes, but trotting them out in Philly, you're sending yeah. them out to die. Christians and the Lions. Woof. And against the Freebirds? Yeah. No. Who, to be fair, are awesome. They're this fucking cool. Yeah. Man, coming out just strutting to Bad Street, USA. I was telling Steve before, like, this started, like, if you go back now, because so many of these songs are dubbed over, and if you watch these shows, it'll be, like, some crappy instrumental, some crappy instrumental, and then suddenly Bad Street USA hits, you would think that the Freebirds were the only cool people in all of wrestling. (laughs) Yeah. um, I think the dudes were coming out to the song Wipeout at this point, but that's obviously dubbed over on the network. Yeah, the music they come out to now is way less embarrassing than that. It's actually not that bad. Less cringe, yeah. I do love that you can see the doubts on Shane Douglas's face. Yeah. You can tell he's like, this isn't working. Johnny Ace, zero doubts. He's going full no bore into this. No. Uh, the dudes, like, the match is backwards, because the dudes, of course, are working his baby faces, but the crowd cheers, you know, for those free birds kicking their asses. Also, the dudes are bigger than the Freebirds. Yeah. People forget that Johnny Ace is fucking enormous. Like Jeez, he should have Jimmy been Garvin heel. is tiny, and Michael Hayes really isn't all that big either. And that's why I think the Freebirds work as faces because they suck, and like they can only <laughs> do like three moves, so they should be doing comebacks. They're underdogs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the dudes go for their slingshot suplex finisher, but Garvin turns it into a pin, and the Freebirds retain. This was fun. The crowd reaction was fun here. The match wasn't very good. 
Yeah, the explosion when the Freebirds win, yes. maybe for the Freebirds, but also just so the dynamic dudes don't win. Uh, then Chris Cruz interviews the Steiners about their upcoming match against Doom, who are making Whoa. their debut. Guys. They're unknown, under the masks. Awful, awful promo here as both guys seem to lose their train of thought. Here's the funny thing. Steiner starts cutting a promo, and he, like, can't get his words out right. And if you're, like, Flair, you're probably like, all right, well, he'll eventually get it. Yeah. 25 years later, still stumbling over the same fucking shit. (laughs) But he's so cool later in his career, it doesn't matter. And honestly, here he's so cool, it doesn't really matter either. Yeah, like, he doesn't say anything of substance whatsoever, but it doesn't matter. He's awesome. Then Rick talks, and Rick... This character Rick is doing is fucking heinous. It's bad. His character is, uh, he seems to be getting more mentally challenged as yes. the year goes on. I feel like, yeah, he's getting slower. Trying to think in of the like beginning, a, a, it was a, a just that he was not gross for this. Yeah, in the beginning, he was just a stupid, dumb jock who yeah. was eat gullible. Now he's genuinely Eugene. Yeah, like that, that's where we've gone. Like Eugene here. And like they've done a thing where woman has oh, seduced him. Let me let me go into the whole backstory. Oh here. yes, let's do it. <laughs> We've got Doom against the Steiner brothers. So a beautiful woman started appearing in the front row of the matches at center stage. Rick Steiner took a liking to her. Eventually, her name was revealed to be Robin Green. This was Nancy Sullivan, later Nancy Benoit, a.k.a. the Fallen Angel, a.k.a. Woman. But here she's like a nerdy woman in like a ponytail and glasses. They literally do the she's all that moment yes. later where she like takes them off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's beautiful. Oh, so, oh, she's hot as shit. Never knew that. She was Rick's girlfriend, and they would do segments where, like, her and Missy Hyatt would, like, get the get Rick's American Express card and, like, go shopping and run up the bill. And eventually, this is revealed to be a ruse, and she debuts a masked team who beat the shit out of the Steiners. There was actually kind of a controversial angle that Meltzer said was, like, disgraceful and disgusting. It was, like... Rick or Scott getting beaten up by masked thugs in the parking lot. I don't I don't know what was supposed to be so disgusting about that. I mean, a lot of this angle, and I do have to wonder about this. So, like, so woman has found two enormous black dudes in order to yeah. do this. And so, like, I imagine in the NWA in 1989, that's a controversial way to go about this. And it shouldn't be, but that's, it is. (laughs) She doesn't like, there's no implication that. Yeah, this isn't like a cucking angle. This is just like a, she was always managing them. Now, hilariously, originally Kevin Sullivan was also managing them, but that's just been dropped by this point. That is funny, though, that like basically his wife is the one. (laughs) Just like Mark Nero. Oh, they see the wife and they're like, oh, that's the real star. And they're not wrong. When woman comes out here, she is awesome. Obviously, everything about her wrestling career is overshadowed by what happens later. But man, was she good. She was money as a heel manager. She is like, what I love about woman. 
she is the like dark mirror image of Elizabeth. Yes. Like she's the 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 classic valet, but the heel version. <laughs> yeah. Like taller, more voluptuous, and much darker than Elizabeth. <laughs> but it's just as glamorous. You yeah. know what I mean? Man, how awesome. I, the, so Doom comes out. It's Simmons and Butch Reed. They got black tights, black boots, black masks. And the black capes were probably too much, but how scary do they look coming out through the smoke here? They are... So we've seen some muscular guys on this show. They are so much more jacked than everyone else. <laughs> so big. They're not it's, as cut as like Lex Luger, but they're just huge Simmons especially looks like he's made out of bricks like it looks it's terrifying the funny thing is they bring them out here they look terrifying like they're gonna kill the world we know though from past law cast episodes that at Starcade they're gonna get jobbed the fuck out that's (laughs) the crazy thing you have this monster heel team and they throw them into that tag team tournament to be the job guys which is just kind of crazy Uh, the Steiners knock Doom around. They're hitting clotheslines, suplexes. Scott hits Reed with a huge German. Really impressive the way Reed got up for that. Absolutely. Uh, Scott gets caught in the wrong corner. He gets worked over for about five minutes. Simmons hits a big power slam, but Rick breaks up the pin. Doom then hits a spike pile driver, but Scott kicks out. Scott manages to tag in Rick. He's got some Steiner lines all stored up and then a power slam. Woman gets up on the apron and loads up Simmons's mask and he headbutts Rick. And we have a massive upset as Doom beat the Steiner brothers. It is absolutely. I liked it. It is absolutely fantastic to have a loaded mask. Like she literally just shoves something into his face and says, go headbutt that motherfucker. Really hurt your face. Yeah, I don't think it would be good for Simmons. Oh. Um, yeah, good stuff. Good debut for Doom. I mean, I think this yeah. is a star-making performance. The idea that they don't become like a dominant tag team that goes forward. The problem is you're introducing them into a company that has the Road Warriors and yeah. the Steiners in it. You can't really be well, a dominant the tag nemesis, team. This is the nemesis team those teams need. Especially the Road Warriors are on their way out. Doom should have killed yeah. them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do. F- I feel like they get their proper push in 1990 once they take the masks off and they've got Teddy Long managing them. But I think that version of them is way less cool than this version. Way less cool. Yeah. Teddy Long with his skullet got nothing on woman. Uh, Then Gordon interviews Lex Luger, and we've got our sub-main event for the United States title. Lex Luger defends against Brian Pillman. A battle of former professional football players here, although seeing the size difference, you probably wouldn't think that Pillman's a former professional football player. Yep. (laughs) Uh, The crowd is wild for Lex Luger here. All right. Again, we need to take a second to point out, like, the narrative about Lex Luger is that he sucks, that he's always sucked, that everyone has always hated him, that he's always been booed. 
we have learned not true he's getting a sid reaction of this heel fucking rules he's so much better than the shitty baby faces my one complaint about his presentation why is he coming out wearing a robe show that body that is the thing like maybe that's the heelishness like don't let him see it like maybe that's like the rick rude like give him the big reveal but he doesn't actually do that (laughs) no he doesn't do it right yeah i I would not have brought him out in a row but man i mean him and pillman facing off here this feels like the new generation right here these two incredibly good looking guy great athletes in incredible shape with real credibility and they have this great athletic dramatic match here this is the dream of the nwa right like real athletes really able to go also like the crowd like cheers luger huge but like they're also way into pillman like they like both of these guys pillman film is where i really noticed the hands in the entryway on his way out where like everyone wants to touch brian (laughs) What a cool dude. And he hasn't really, they haven't really given him much of a character. I don't even know that they've really told his story yet. I don't think they've explained that, like, this guy wasn't supposed to survive from birth. Like, he had to have something like 20 throat surgeries before he was five years old. It's an inspirational story. Yeah. And, like, he, he's a cool-ass dude. He has a style no other heavyweight in the world has right now, other than maybe, like, Muda. Yeah. Oh, my God. I never thought about him and Muda facing off, but I love that idea. Yeah, they're eventually going to decide he's too short and he's a yeah. junior, which is a disaster, because, really, just go with the smaller guys. You know, Luger initially overpowers Pillman, but Pillman's like a rabid dog. He comes at Luger like a spider monkey here. Would you say he's like a yellow dog? He takes advantage of Luger (laughs) being overly aggressive to get control of the match. Pillman goes for a splash, but Luger rolls out of the way. He hits some clotheslines, but then Pillman ducks a clothesline and Luger goes over the top to the floor. Quite a bump from the big man there. Luger, for his credit, like he's up against a smaller guy here who's not a star, and he's like <clears throat> going to the extreme to put Brian Pillman over. He's selling his ass off for him. Pillman goes for the 10 punch, but Luger turns it into an inverted atomic drop. He tries for a superplex, but Luger or Pillman pushes him off the top rope and then follows up with a diving sunset flip for a close two count. Pillman hits a backdrop in the flying clothesline. It looks like that's going to get the win, but Luger gets a foot on the ropes. Pillman hits a neckbreaker. He goes for the missile dropkick. Luger drops down to avoid it. He catches Pillman with a hot shot and gets the one, two, three. That's a great finish, but I don't know if the audience knows about Pillman's throat issues. I don't think that they do. And, like, it, you really need to have that information. Otherwise, this just kind of seems okay. Yeah, hot shot doesn't feel like it should be a finisher, but knowing that, you know, Pillman's had to have all these throat surgeries in his life, then it makes a lot more sense. But excellent match. I love this. This feels like this feels like an NWA match, you know? Yeah. Like this feels like what a great athletic thing. It doesn't have like a flashy finish or anything like that. It's just fucking good and athletic and it goes. This absolutely should have been the first of like five matches between these guys over the course of years. 
Yeah. I continue to just come away from this season so impressed by Lex Luger. I don't think it's unfair to say that aside from Ric Flair, who's been having some of the greatest matches of all time, yeah. I think Luger's the all-star of this. Like, Definitely the guy who exceeded expectations the most. And like they had that turn, like he was good as a baby face, and then he turned and he's great as a heel. Him as like a big, strong bully wrestling smaller baby faces like Billman is money, man. Money. <laughs> then we get Chris Cruz interviewing the Road Warriors. They say men build buildings and they tear them down like they're going to tear down the skyscrapers tonight. The first words out of his mouth were, we've been underdogs our whole life. You're the Road Warriors. What the fuck do you mean? The tendency of wrestling promoters to just try to make every babyface an underdog. The Road Warriors just, are not underdogs. They're awesome. Like, And sometimes babyfaces can just be awesome. You're allowed to just be cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the Road Warriors started as heels and they got turned face just because everybody cheered them because they loved seeing them beat dudes up. Yep. All right, we got the Road Warriors against the Skyscrapers. Feels a little early in the Skyscrapers run to be doing this match, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Like, they're blowing off the Skyscrapers, basically. Because doesn't yeah. Sid get separated from them, like, right after this? Sid misses Starcade with an injury, and then they put him in the Horsemen. And I, but I think Spivey may leave the company in early 92. Yeah, so, like... They're blowing off the skyscrapers, which seems bizarre, but I mean, I guess, like, you got to do something. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Sid, I think Sid is too good to be in this tag team. I think this tag team is holding oh, back. Yeah. When they come out, <clears throat> it's so funny because you don't usually see people stand right next to Sid. And it's not really fair to Dan Spivey. He's a huge, impressive looking dude, but he looks like dog Sid's shit next so to bad. Sid. <laughs> Uh, Spidey is a big man. He might be, I don't know, 6'4", but Sid is six inches taller and so much more muscular. Like, he just looks like no other human I've ever seen. (laughs) Man, crowd is wild. They are going crazy for this showdown between the monsters. Yep. Uh, The Road Warriors use their ring savvy early to control the match. At one point, Sid is in, like, a head scissor, and he kips up. Yes, he does. Sometimes Sid just does shit, and I don't... (laughs) Just to show he can. The fucking crowd explodes. Of course. Skyscrapers work over Hawk, hot tagged Animal, and at this point, the match just kind of breaks down, and we get a DQ, which is kind of disappointing, but... No, but, I mean, you could beat Spy. I would have probably beat Spivey here and then had Sid turn on him. Yep. <clears throat> I think you're right about that. Decent match, but, yeah, I mean, that, this is a Clash of the Champions finish, not a pay-per-view finish. Yep. Next up, Gordon interviews Flair, Sting, and Ole Anderson, looking like the meanest stepdad who's ever existed. God. This man... It's just bizarre to see him here. Like, I know that he and Flair have a relationship and, like, that makes sense. But, like, he's just not the guy. No. Not the guy. Ole says he's not going to throw the towel in tonight no matter what happens. I believe that. I believe that he won't. 
It's main event time. The Thunderdome cage match. Sting and Ric Flair against Terry Funk and the Great Muda. What is your best grasp of the rules of this match? Okay. So multiple people try to explain it, including when Chris Cruz interviews Bruno San Martino earlier on the show, Cruz gets it wrong and San Martino tries to correct him. <laughs> Bruno, the old pro. Because literally, like, Cruz is like, and then uh, San Martino will throw out the match if it's getting too hectic. And he's like, well, no, no, I won't. I'm like, not allowed uh, to. I, I would never stop the match under any circumstances. Okay, so there's the two guys outside, Ole Anderson and Gary Hart. And to my yeah. knowledge, the only way this match can end is if they throw in the towel. They're called yes. Terminators. Terminators. They, they have the ability to terminate the match by throwing in the towel. And that is the only way this match can conclude. That is my understanding. Yes. Um, the cage is supposedly electrified and it's that big, this big bar cage. This is the same one they used for, um, Piper versus Hogan at Halloween Havoc 97, the really big cage that surrounds ringside. I think this is a cool looking cage. I would have painted it black, but it's a cool cage, I think. I think it's a cool cage. I like the bar cage a lot. I know some people don't. I don't, but I think it's neat. <laughs> the wrestlers, uh, you know, my understanding hated it because they it was really stiff to get thrown into. But it's very easy to climb, which I like. And, and it's you can actually see through it, which yeah. helps, especially looks, in like I think it looks way more impressive than the you know fence cage. It just looks more intimidating. Like the chicken wire cage just moves so much. It doesn't really seem like you're trapped, you know? Yeah. And of course, Bruno San Martino is our referee. He comes out first to a very nice reaction from the crowd. They love the Italian stallion in Philly. Thank God they never like turned on Bruno because oh, like, oh, we book and boo the baby face. No, you can't turn on Bruno. <laughs> uh, Muda comes out first, then Funk. And then Sting, and finally Flair. This is where I was confused about whether this music was actually dubbed or not, because I thought for sure that this was Funk's actual music that he was coming out to, but I guess it's not. No, he was coming out to the um, harmonica theme from Once Upon a Time in America, the Assassin's theme. Right, but they give him some genuinely awesome like is music the, Yeah, here. is this the Desperado dub that you yes. for him in ECW? Yeah, that's what I was thinking this was. Yeah, so that's very cool. Flair gets the whole build-up to his song, yeah. not just the normal music. Yeah, they don't start with the crescendo. They do the long, slow build, which is very cool. Yeah. Muda, love Muda's music, and I don't know if that's a dub or not. I'm so, like, I don't know what Sting's original music was, but, like, I, I kind of love this, like, I've gotten think, so adjusted I think this to is, this. I think this is his actual music, just that guitar okay. riff. I was about to say, because I've gotten so used to it that that's just Sting's music to me now. Yeah, I think this is what he was actually coming out to. I don't think he had, like, a real song. That would make sense. JR makes a very good point that Hart has more incentive to stop the match because Muda and Funk are his money makers, and he's not going to want them to get injured, whereas Ole has no similar incentive with Flair and Sting. If Ric Flair and Sting die in that ring, how does it affect Ole Anderson's life in any no way? No difference to that miserable prick. Maybe you would want to get Ric Flair out because she's your buddy. But if Sting bleeds to death, all right. 
They bring down the cage. It has a bunch of stuff on it. It has cobwebs, Halloween props, all that sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. Funk immediately starts climbing the electrified cage. Again, Funk is the one who told people it was electrified. Yes. There was no other mention on this show by anyone that it would be electrified. Some of the cobwebs catch fire from the fireworks they set off. Hilariously, Muda climbs up the cage and spits mist to put out the fire. I want you guys to think about the baddest ass thing you've ever done in your entire life. And I want you to know that it does not compare to being like, oh, there's a fire. Well, I can handle that. Climbing that shit up and misting it out. That's the coolest shit I've ever seen. They start off with two men in the ring, tagging in and out, Sting and Flair control, and then the match starts breaking down and they fight on the floor. Flair and Funk climb the cage. Still no sign of it being electrified. JR starts to say that it must only be the top part of the cage that's electrified. The funny thing is, TNA does this exact same shit like 30 years later and has all the exact... Except they, were like, you touch the cage and they do like, play a big zap oh, yeah. sound effect and they change the light. They like flicker the lights a little bit. Yep, I remember that pay-per-view. Yeah, we covered it. It's disaster. Muda and Sting climb up, too. To his credit, Muda actually sells it like he got shocked when he touches yes. the upper part of the cage. Somebody paid Somebody paid attention to the booking meeting. Yeah, the one who does not speak good English still knows <laughs> the rules of this match better than everyone else. Yeah, because he's an actual fucking professional. That's true. Uh, back in the ring, Sting holds Muda up over his head for like 30 seconds. I didn't quite get this at first, but I think... He was telling Gary Hart, throw the towel in or I'm going to throw him out. Oh, that does make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Funk climbs all the way to the top of the cage. He does not get shocked. Funk just flat out either doesn't care or doesn't remember. And he just doesn't for one second pretend like it's real. Flair puts Muda in the figure four in the ring. Meanwhile... Up top, Sting gets a rope and swings like Tarzan to dropkick Funk at the top of the cage. I don't know where the fuck this rope comes from. (laughs) But this is truly incredible. Is this cool? Didn't Batista do this in one of the Punjabi prison matches? Or did he jump from one part of the cage to the other? He's literally stay on one, and the other part of the cage is five feet away, and he just fucking jumps his ass. Amazingly, he didn't rip all of his pecs. God. Yes, that was Luchador Batista, remember? The one where he's unbelievably yeah. athletic for the one time in his whole career. Uh, Flair breaks the figure four voluntarily, and then a minute later, Muda gets Flair in the Muda lock. Funk comes into the ring and helps him beat up Flair. Sting then dives off the top of the cage onto Funk. That's unbelievable. Jumping from the top of this cage into the ring. Again, like, the Sting and Muda part, like, Funk and Flair are doing a great job, but Sting and Muda are, like, doing new shit no one's ever seen before. Like, obviously, it's not the first dive off the cage, but, like, they're just wrestling a totally different kind of match. 
Jim Ross starts to suddenly complain that they've just forgotten about tagging in and out. I appreciated that. Jeez, fuck off. The idea that this is a genuine classic tag match in a Thunderdome cage, like, come on, guys. Just do it tornado style. Flair puts Funk in the figure four. Sting hits Funk with a splash off the top rope while he's in the hold and then does it a second time. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Muda goes after Bruno, and Muda, Bruno just knocks the fuck out of him with the right hand. Huge pop for that. That is incredible, yeah. Hart tries to get in the ring. Ole cuts him off, and the towel falls out of Hart's hand. Bruno doesn't see what happened. He just sees the towel fall in, you know, fly into the frame, and he calls for the bell for the stoppage. Like, obviously, this was not going to be, a, like, a real throwing in the towel thing. They're not really ready to blow off any of this stuff. No, they got to set up the Flair Funk I Quit match for the Clash. Yeah, so this is a perfectly fine way to get out of it, I felt like. this, like Obviously, this would have been a more entertaining match if the rules had actually made any sense. But, like, this is still good. They just didn't. I think they just overdid this one. Like, I don't know why it has to be an I quit match. I don't know why you need Ole and Gary Hart. I think this would have worked just fine if it had just been a regular cage tag match. I do find it very funny that like Dusty Rhodes is not here. However, nope. do you feel do you feel like Flair was like, "Fuck, I need a fucking yeah. gimmick for this." Uh, let's Probably call up Dusty. Dusty. Yeah. Dusty, you got anything for me? <laughs> the Thunder Cage. Because Dusty would just give away his ideas for free. Oh, yeah. He'd be like, oh, baby, I had a vision of an electrified cage. Yeah, exactly. Like With when they Nick needed Max a finish for it. the bull rope match, and they just called Dusty, even though he was booking for TNA at the time. That's the greatest moment in something to wrestle with history, is revealing that Vince was just like, oh, we need a bull rope finish. Call Dusty. He's booking for your competition. Okay. So? <laughs> and he was right. Dusty just gave him a finish. Was that for the Eddie Guerrero JBL match? It was, yes. Jesus Christ, they needed a finish for their world title match, and they called the Booker from the other promotion. Yeah, because Bruce came up with the finish, and Vince thought it sucked ass. Probably did. Yeah. I don't love the finish Dusty came up with there either, but sure. Uh, I don't know. This this match had some great spots, but I just had trouble getting over the silliness of the, the electrified cage and them climbing. I it just overdid the gimmicks. The, no, they sh- the cage should not have been electrified. It can just be a regular cage. I didn't hate the props. Maybe they were a little hokey, but it's Halloween Havoc. I'm into that. Yeah, agreed. Um... And we just kind of go off the air. We don't get a big spectacular finish here. Um, how'd you rate this show? I thought it was good. This is kind of a thumbs in the middle for me. I didn't hate it or love it. Yeah, the last show we literally said may be the greatest pay-per-view that had ever existed to this point. This certainly is not taking its place. But it's still a good show. Like, I, I feel like you get your money's worth. It was entertaining. Like, you can see a vision of the, a solid, concrete future ahead of you. Unfortunately, that is not the future we're going to get because in three months it's going to be drastically different again. <laughs> no. The, man, uh, the good times are going to be over soon. Um, yep. But 
Next week, we're going to get to cover maybe the last good time. Clash of the Champions, New York Knockout, the legendary Flair versus Funk I Quit match. I cannot wait to talk about this one. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible match. Um, I, I can't, I've never seen any of the rest of that clash, just that match. So I'm very excited for both. Man. Um, so yeah. And I think that'll serve as our season finale. I don't think we need to go to Starcade and do a round Robin tournaments. No, I, I literally hate that Starcade with my whole heart. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. I, I refuse to cover for this podcast, Muda getting jobbed out ever. It's just so frustrating because they have like there's such you can there's so obviously the makings of a good Starcade here with yes. Flair versus Funk, Sting versus Muda, Luger versus Pillman, you know, either Road Warriors versus Steiners or Steiners versus Skyscrapers or you know you've got plenty of talent Road Warriors uh, versus Midnight's or probably the probably the Steiners against the newly heel Midnight Express. Yeah, you do Doom versus the Road Warriors. That makes sense. Yeah, or you blow off Doom and Steiners there. Or somebody can face the Freebirds. Like, th- there's there's so much that they're building to that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, you could do the Steiners winning the tag titles from the Freebirds. That would make sense. Or the Road Warriors winning the tag titles from the Freebirds. I, they've got the roster, and they've got the feuds, and they just choose not to do any of them at Starcade for some reason. Because they have an idea. A capital I idea. What if we did a weird theme show? And then when it fails, they every year after that, they're just like, hey, it's Starcade. What if we did a weird theme show? So, yeah. Next time, we'll cover Clash of the Champions New York Knockout and the epic season finale of 1989 Steve's version. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.